on which our teaching is based. Tony has been preaching, I am the way, the truth, and the life for this sermon. It's from John 14, 1 through 7. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Steve. As Steve said, we're in a new series right now. We're looking in the Gospel of John uh, at a series of sayings that only appear in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of heaven. I am the good shepherd, which we looked at uh, the last time we got together. Today, I am the resurrection and the truth and the life. No, so I am the way, the truth, and the life. Then we're going to look at I am the true vine, and then I am the resurrection and the life. If you uh, have read the New Testament at all, you notice there's a, a difference between the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very much a chronicle of Jesus' life. They start at the beginning, and they end with uh, Christ returning to his Father after, after death and resurrection. But John, uh, this particular gospel, is very different. Rather than a chronology of Jesus' life, John the evangelist essentially collected sermons and teachings that he had given about Jesus. And that's why it's structured very differently from the other gospels. And that's why we see a series of passages like this one. John was interested in explaining who Jesus is and was rather than just documenting and chronicling his life. When Jesus says these things in a series of teachings, he is challenging the leadership of Israel, but he's also challenging his disciples, as we'll see if we look at this passage. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. So Jesus speaks these words at the Last Supper. This is uh, right before he is arrested and goes to the cross. So he's just eaten with his disciples. They have the Last Supper together. We celebrate it every Sunday. He has washed their feet, demonstrating that he's servant of all rather than master, basically teaching us that leadership is about service. He has predicted that Judas will betray him, he has predicted that Peter will deny him. And he's told them that he's about to die, that he's going to face death. And that's why they're troubled. They've been following him for three years. Now he's telling them that he's going to be betrayed, that they're going to deny him, or at least Peter is. They all run away, in fact, and that he's going to die. Underlying all the trouble is the fact of death. This is Jesus predicting his own death. 
Jesus is someone that they love. They've been following him for three years. They believe he is the Messiah. They have confessed to him that they believe that he is uh, sent by God. And now he's telling them that he's going to die. It seems that death, the great enemy of life and everything that they love and everything that we love, it looks like death is going to win. So before we're looking at the rest of what Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, let's just consider the trouble that he's answering. Because he's answering their concerns here. What is their trouble with death? Well, it's all our trouble. And it's a double trouble. Not only do you just die, you know, there is the, the terrible ending of death, the obscene rupture of relationships and love and life and everything that we are, the end of our consciousness and experience. I mean, a light being extinguished, that is a terrifying idea, a vast ending of everything. That's scary enough. But what happens? What if there is more? What if death is not an end? What if there is something beyond death? Shakespeare put it uh, perhaps most famously when he has his uh, character Hamlet considering suicide. And famously, Hamlet says, to be or not to be. That is, to exist or not to exist, to live or not to live. Are there so many problems in my life? And Hamlet was a troubled man. Are there so many problems that he should just end it? Avoid the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and just kill himself, commit suicide, rather than suffer through the rest of his life. And he considers it. Maybe death is just switching off the light and it'll end all my problem. But then he considers to die, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil. It's one thing just to die, to switch the light off. But what if there is more? What if there is something else? What if we go or experience a different place? The dread of something after death. The undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others we know not of. On the other side of death is a something. Shakespeare calls it the undiscovered country. A terrifying place because we don't know what's going to happen there, what could happen there. A place that you can play all your terrors, all your nightmares, all your greatest fears. That's what Jesus is addressing right here. He has died. He's going to die. He will be resurrected. And he's going to take his followers through death to that undiscovered country. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? On the other side of death, which is terrifying in and of itself. 
Jesus, the great shepherd, will lead us into that undiscovered country and in that place provide a home, a welcome, a loving family, a room secured just for each of us, a welcome guaranteed and a place guaranteed. And so belief, faith, truth, what you believe is true, how you think about your future and how you think about death determines who you believe. Hamlet and his undiscovered country from whence no one returns, or Jesus. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. It's no accident or surprise that this passage is often requested at funerals because there is extraordinary hope here, an extraordinary promise. Not only that death is overcome, but that beyond death, there is a welcome, there is a future, there is a life, there is a home. And this is the core of Christian belief. It's what Peter said. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life in this other country, the undiscovered country. Paul, for there is, not, there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, and that man is Christ Jesus. Or Jesus himself. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way and the truth and the life. It's an absolute claim. It's a promise. It is a hope. It is the truth. But it's the truth that upsets us. It's the central claim of Christianity, yet it cuts against the spirit of our age, of all ages, who are suspicious of people who claim to know the truth, who claim to know absolutely the way, the truth, what life is all about. Somebody might agree, yes, Jesus is a great teacher, and I can accept that Jesus is the way for you, for Christians. That's fine. Whatever floats your boat. But don't go around telling me that Jesus is the only way and the only truth and the only life. That you have the truth and nobody else does. That you are right and other people are wrong. That's just arrogance. That's offensive to me. That's an example of intolerance and hatred. Don't claim to know the truth. Oh, my goodness. You and I felt, wow. <laughs> By the way, could you hear me before, or was I just? <laughs> All right. Don't tell me what the truth is. There are other ways. You know, I felt this most strongly. Um, a few years back, I, I had a trip to India, and it was in the north of India, where the river Ganges comes out of the Himalayas. 
And uh, it is a fierce river when it comes out of the Himalayas, straight from the glaciers. And it is a vivid, beautiful, icy blue. It looks so clean and so wholesome. And it's the reason that for Hindus, the river Ganges is sacred because it is pure. It is unpollutable. It can wash away all sin, all problems. It's the reason that Hindus bathe in it, drink it, put dead bodies into it, um, do all kinds of things with the river Ganges because it is undefilable. It is so pure and clean and wholesome. And I stood there. There was a, a huge area right where it comes out of the Himalayas, a huge gathering place for pilgrims. And you can stand on a bridge and look at the pilgrims gathered on either bank. And it's huge, huge, like a huge festival, tens of thousands of people. And there are people singing and dancing and people throwing flowers into the river and bathing in the river and drinking in the river. And there are cattle in the river and there are people getting married and blessed by gurus sitting on the side of the river, and there are burning dead bodies being pushed into the river. It's extraordinary to watch. And the whole landscape around there is altered for all these pilgrims. And as I stood there watching it, I was thinking, am I just arrogant to believe that as a Christian, I know the truth and the way and the life, and these people do not? These tens of thousands, the millions and billions of people around the world who don't follow Jesus, that they're just stupid, that they're just lost? Isn't there a tremendous arrogance about Christianity and these truth claims? Well, I want you to think about three things. Christianity claims to know the truth and points at Jesus. What about people who deny that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? You'll oftentimes hear people who criticize Christianity and its claims. They'll use various metaphors, variations on a metaphor, to say that Jesus and Christianity are just one way. You know, there's the, uh, the famous one. The truth or God is like an elephant. And one group of people touch the tail and think that God is like the tail. And one group touch the, the legs and think that God is like the, the legs. One group touch the ears, one group touches the, uh, what do you call it? Trunk. One group touches the horns. Each group has one glimpse or one touch or one way perspective of looking at this greater whole. Each one is one way of approaching the single truth, the elephant. Or the mountain, you know, there's all these different paths up to the mountain, but they all meet at the top because there's one truth at the top of the mountain, and every faith, every belief is on. It's just another path up the mountain. And it sounds very egalitarian. It sounds very tolerant. It sounds very accepting. It sounds humble. We're all just one looking at one way. But think of what all those kinds of ideas are actually saying. They're saying that every belief system in the world has its way of approaching the truth. But these privileged, elevated uh, people looking at the whole alone can see the whole elephant and see all the different people touching bits of it. They alone can see the whole mountain and the whole truth while everybody else has to struggle up the different paths. 
It is actually the most arrogant way of looking at any kind of belief system and looking at the religious traditions of the world. And it has an implication. If you already, from your perspective, can see the whole truth, the final truth, the truth that everybody else is looking for, you don't have to change. You're perfect. You're already there. You alone, or separate from every other tradition, have the unique perspective on truth. And it's not only arrogant, it's also very lonely. At different times, I've, uh, as I was struggling and as I struggle with what it means to be a Christian, I've met with non-Christians. When I was at college, I was part of a, a group of essentially embarrassed Christians who were trying to figure out what they believed. And um, we do the same thing, by the way, in Symposium. If you've ever been to Symposium on Washington Street, it's filled with people like that. They want to talk about spirituality. They want to explore different ideas and different traditions. They don't want to hear the gospel because they want to hear and control the agenda of spirituality. They specialize in talking about the religious experience of other people and what they believe. And they hold God at a distance. Rather than God as a subject that they can be in relationship with, God is an object, an idea, a philosophy that you can talk about. And you can look at it this way and that way. It's all about ideas about God rather than a relationship with God. And it's fun. I mean, it's fun to talk about God. But after a while, you realize these people are lost. Every time I've ever been in such a group, at the end, I'd say, shall we pray? And they'd say, okay, you pray. Because they don't know how to pray because they don't have a relationship with the truth. The truth is this distant idea. They are parasites on people who have a relationship with God. They are alienated because they have an idea or a belief or a system of ideas or a collection of random uh, thoughts about God. But they don't have any kind of relationship. They are bewitched by spirituality, its ideas, its practices, things that they can think about and talk about and control. But there's no surrender. There's no humility. There's no relationship. It's simplistic. It's lazy. It's arrogant. And it's condescending. And it produces lazy, alienated people because they have to be responsible for themselves. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, as a, as a Christian watching um, all the Hindu celebrations at the temple in the Ganges, I was grateful for one thing. There was this tremendous human drama, and there was the wonder of it. It was just a, an incredible spectacle. But a single thought kept going through my head. Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. Tens of thousands of people toiling and striving and yearning at the Ganges. An endless cycle of duty. Rituals. Expense to buy flowers and give money to gurus. 
to pay money to, to just get there. The struggle to increase that karma and prepare for a better next life because they believe in reincarnation and different levels of existence. And you've got to struggle and struggle and struggle and struggle. Made me think of the, the Greek myth of Sisyphus, you know, who's uh, condemned for all eternity to push a great boulder up a mountain. And every time he gets close to the top, it rolls back down. And he has to push it back up again. That's religion. That is the endless, dreary, dutiful cycle of trying to reach the top of the mountain, trying to find the truth, trying to make yourself worthy. And it never gets you anywhere. Why? Because we don't belong at the top of the mountain. We are not good people. Human beings are not good people. Notice, by the way, in our worship service, what did we do? And we do it every Sunday. We confess. Because we know, deep down, we don't belong at the top of the mountain. We don't belong in the garden. We are not worthy of God's relationship, presence. Because God is perfection, and we are not. God is life, and we are dying. God is good, and in our heart and heart of hearts, we know that we're not good. That's why people strive so hard at religious ceremonies. Christianity is not a performance. It's not really an idea or a philosophy. It's not a teaching. It's not an idea to be debated. It's a life and death drama. Imagine you're out on a stormy ocean and your ship is sinking and the cold water is up to your knees and the boat is about to disappear below the waves. You're desperate. You are terrified. And then a miracle. A light appears in the darkness and you hear the sound of a helicopter. And from the helicopter comes down a human figure who reaches out and says, I'm the Coast Guard. Grab hold of me. I'll take you home. I'll save you. And he comes to your side, grabs onto you, and you grab hold to him, and winches you away. What do you need in that moment? Does it matter what you believe? Does it matter how much you know? Does it matter what your ideas are about coast guards and sinking ships and the ocean? There's nothing to debate. There's nothing to argue with. It doesn't matter what other people are thinking. It doesn't really even matter what you believe. The only thing that matters is do you have enough faith in that terrified moment to reach out? Because that's what faith is, a direction. Do you have enough faith in that person to save you from that predicament? That is Christianity. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's striking that the person who speaks right here as Jesus makes the central claims about Christianity is Thomas. Because Thomas is, of course, the doubter. Thomas is the one that doubts even when Jesus Christ, after his resurrection, appears before all the other disciples. 
And Thomas can't believe it's really Jesus until he puts his fingers in the wounds on, his, on Jesus' hands and the wound of the spear in his side. It is the doubter who asks the way. And I think this is a good thing to remember. Christianity is not about a certainty of what the truth is or a dogma about the truth. Christianity and faith is always about our doubts. Remember when we looked at uh, the story of Abraham, the father of faith. It was not a one-time event. The story of Abraham is the struggle and the journey of faith through all the betrayals and all the doubts and all the failures. Faith is a journey. It is not a one-off, I believe. Think of Abraham's descendants. Abraham's son, his third son, is Jacob. And Jacob famously wrestles with God. God renames him Israel, which means he who struggles with God. That is the name of the holy chosen people, Israel. And Christians are grafted into that family. We are the new Israel. We are now part of the covenantal family. That is still our name. He who doubts. Your Christian life, my Christian life, will be defined by doubts, by struggles over our faith. Can I really believe? Could it really be true, this extraordinary story? Don't expect that ever to go away. It won't ever go away until that light and that human figure reaches out of the darkness and takes your hand. That's when you will know. And Christians aren't arrogant. Christians are humble. What is the nature of arrogance? Well, it's a three-step process. A group of people decide that they're the good guys. We know the truth. We know what the world is about. We have the answer. If you have the good guys, you've got to identify the bad guys. We have the truth. Those people, they don't have the truth. They are the bad guys. We don't like them. One step further, we are the solution. They are the problem. Third step, the most terrible step. As soon as you turn other human beings into the problem, then the answer is clear. The final solution to the problem is to get rid of the problem people. Those are the steps of intolerance. And it starts with the conviction that you are right, you are good, you have the answer. Is that true of Christianity? No, it's not. Because Christianity says we are the problem, not those people out there. The essence of Christianity is the recognition that we are sinful. We are not good people. We don't have the answers. We have the same problems as everybody else. The only difference is we know a Savior. I've used this example many times because it's one of my favorites. There was a competition in um, England back in the 50s. 
And a newspaper asked the question of its readers, what is the problem with the world? And they were, they were thinking it was going to be about war or famine or goodness knows what. But the winner of the competition, out of thousands of answers, was G.K. Chesterton. He was a, a Catholic writer, and he sent in a postcard, and he had a single answer, single sentence, I am the problem. And that's what won the competition. I am the problem, not those people out there. I'm not a good guy, and therefore there are no bad guys. We all equally need a savior. There's no arrogance in Christianity. There is a fundamental humble, humbleness. I am a desperate sinner, lost, terrified, frightened in this world alone, and I need Jesus to save me. That's why Jesus is a savior, not a teacher, not a philosopher. Jesus saves. I am the life. If you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That's the rest of your life from now on. Once you know Jesus, it's going to change everything. It means... In this life, before our death, we now have a direction. It means we have a new way of living in the world. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then one day we will be confronted by that great terror, death. We looked at it when we uh, looked at Jesus as the great shepherd, the one who leads us through that death. And remember verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. Christian life, a shepherd, a savior who takes us through death, and what on the other side? Life. At the center of our church is the Lord's table. The Lord's table exists because Jesus went to that Last Supper, but more than that, because he went to the cross from us, for us. What happened on that cross? Jesus, the man, died and was raised to life new. And the promise, every time we go to the table, is the same thing will happen for us. That life beyond death in that undiscovered country will be a life without all the ugliness. What will be put to death is all the things that are not of God, that are unworthy of God. And the life that we will have there will be a life in Christ-likeness. Every time we come to the table in faith, we're saying, yes, Lord, I need you. And yes, Lord, I need what you achieved for me on the cross. And yes, Lord, I want the new life in that new place with you.
because this is the family table of that new place. Don't think that your doubts are a problem. Your struggle with faith and with God is the journey. It was the journey that Abraham took. It's the journey that every Christian takes. But that struggle has a direction. And the direction is towards God through Christ. And every time you come to this table, humbly, depending only on him and not yourself, you're receiving that new life. You're receiving the essence of Christianity, Jesus himself. So when you come to the table this morning, I want you to think about that. Maybe say a prayer. Maybe just say, Lord, I need you. Invite Christ to guide you. Invite Christ to be your Savior and your Shepherd. Invite Christ to reveal to you more clearly what faith is all about, what belief is all about, what is the truth. As we prepare ourselves to go to the table, let's pray.